Hello, I'm iChurch. Hi, I'm Me Church. Well, I gotta go. What on earth are you doing? I'm uh, getting out of the box. I want to try something new. But why? We have everything we need right here in the box. We have our church sermons, we have our church music, and we have our church friends. <laughs> well, it looks like you have everything you need, but I'm still gonna go. It looks dangerous. I don't care. I want to make a difference, and sometimes you just have to face your fears. Hey, it can be scary inside the box, too. One time, I got a cardboard cut. You live on the edge. No! I told you it was dangerous! Hey, I'm just kidding. I'm fine. Well, we're in a series called Intentional Life, and, and I know that uh, for those of you who've been with us uh, for the last three weeks, I'm probably going to do something that's a little bit redundant right now. I just want to give a real quick flyover review. The reason why I feel compelled to do this is that if this is your first time to be here, there's something that you need to know, and without this piece of information, it may be hard for you to process all the things that we're going to talk about. Intentional Life is a story of two generations, not two people, but two generations of people. And these two generations were one right before the other. The first generation was the generation of Israelites who were contemporaries with the leader Moses. When God comes to talk to this generation, they're all slaves in Egypt. They're having to do, they're basically Pharaoh's slave labor force that's building the pyramids. And, and, and they're, they feel the lash of the whip. And they don't have enough food to get by. And they're just, they're, their lives are just absolutely miserable. And God comes along and talks to Moses, and he said, Moses, here's the thing. I'm going to take all these people, and by the way, there are about three million of them. So when you watch the movies, or, you know, you read the books, and it looks like Moses is out there with about three or 400 people. You need to get a, you know, think about what it looks like when you watch Lord of the Rings, and you see that big army out there, the computer-generated army, you know. That's kind of what it was like. Moses had three million people. You don't, do, you don't make any fast moves with 300 million people, or three million people. At least it's pretty hard. But God came to Moses and said, here's the deal. I'm going to get all these people out, and you're going to lead them. You're going to lead them out of Egypt, and you're going to lead them into this awesome land that the Bible says flowed with milk and honey, which is a metaphor for absolute wealth and, and grandeur and splendor. And, and by the way, you know, I don't want to get into this today, but isn't it interesting that after all these years that there's still a lot of contention going on about this piece of real estate over there? But in any event, God was saying to Moses, I'm going to take you out of Egypt. I'm going to give you this land. You're going to live in houses that you didn't build, and you're going to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. You're going to drink, you know, drink from streams. It's going to be awesome. And, and it should have just taken a few months, maybe just weeks, for the Israelites to get out of Egypt and to get into this land, Canaan, that God had promised. And you know how God did it. I mean, he, he, he convinced Pharaoh, made him 10 deals that Pharaoh couldn't refuse, and finally, God got them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. God opened up the Red Sea, you know, miraculously. They walked across on dry land. They got into the wilderness and got right up to the border of Canaan. They were just right there. We're just talking about a matter of weeks from the time that, you know, the, the last plague came and the Red Sea opened up. Just a matter of weeks. They got right to the border of Canaan and they choked. That was the whole thing about this generation. If you want to know something about generation one, really, those two words, they choked, that pretty well tells the story. Because they, God had said, I'm going to help you. I'm going to, you know, you're going to defeat your enemies. I'm going to give you strength. And, 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 and nobody's going to be able to stand up against you. But they sent 12 spies over to check out Canaan. And when the report came back, 10 of the spies said, man, there are giants over there. We're going to get waxed if we go there. And the people got all upset. And they said, no, we don't want to go. 
Well, like I shared with you last week, it wasn't like God had a whole lot of options because they didn't want to go to Canaan. They couldn't go back to Egypt. So God said, okay, I'm going to let you just go in circles out here in the desert for 38 years. You know, these are people that didn't trust God. They didn't have the courage to take God up on his challenge. And God said, all right, everybody over the age of 20 dies in the wilderness. Nobody over 20 is going into the land. That was a very drastic measure. But God understood something very clearly. God understood that the mindset of that generation was not faith. It was not a generation that understood the component of risk. Understand something. They understood religion very well. They understood the concept of God pretty well for their time. So don't think these are a bunch of pagans out here. These, these are people who are religious people, God's people, God's chosen nation. But they just did not have it in their DNA to risk. They didn't have faith. And God said, okay, only those who are 20 and younger go into the land. And for 38 years, they just wandered around the wilderness. And you can do the math and figure out that if everybody over 20 is going to die within 38 years, and there are 3 million people, they're going to, they're going to dig a lot of graves for 38 years. But that's what happened. God held them. God held them in the worst of all holding patterns until this first generation died off. Even Moses, Moses had faith, but God did not allow him to go into the promised land, and Moses died. Now, God comes along, and it's generation two now. It's this generation that was 20 or under when they got to the border of Canaan, and two guys, the two spies that went over there and came back and said, yeah, God's going to help us do this. Let's do it. God said, you guys can go. And those two guys, one of them we're going to talk about in a sermon about aging without getting old, which I cannot wait to preach. It's the story of Caleb, and we're going to look at him when he's 80 years old. And what we're going to discover is Caleb is still motivated by the same stuff he was motivated by when he was 20 years old. And that's one of the keys to living life in the zone, is aging without getting old. But we'll cover Caleb later. The other guy is Joshua. Joshua is going to be the leader. He will be the successor for Moses. And God comes along to Joshua and says... I want you to be the leader, and I want you to take the people, get them across the goal line, get them into the promised land. Now, this next generation will do awesome things, and they're who we're studying. We're going to school on this generation because for one shining moment, this generation got their life in the zone. They experienced God's blessing at its absolute best. And I wanted to know, what was it about this generation that allowed them to experience life in the zone, life at its best? Because I want you and me to do that too. You know, some of us are like generation one. We've accepted Christ, and we go to church, but we just sort of bump along on the bottom. And God don't want you living like that. God wants you to get your life in the zone. He wants you to move it up to the next level. And that's what we're looking at. And, and I, I've given you three keys already. And for those of you who've been with me for the last three weeks, I sort of apologize for this because I know it's redundant, but give me a few, just a few moments to talk about the first three keys that we looked at. The first key is step up to the mic. When God says, I have a great job for you to do, I want something big from you, you just say yes. And that's what Joshua did. God said, Joshua, in chapter 1, God said, the time has come for you. I really believe this. If you're following Jesus Christ, there are going to be times when God comes along and says, the time has come for you. I want you to do something extraordinary. You say, me? Yeah. God wants you to do something extraordinary. And there'll be some opportunity out there. It'll be bigger than you are. It'll be tougher than you think you can, you know, than you can, than you can overcome. God-sized stuff is always big. But you'll kind of hear that little prompting, not a, maybe an audible prompting, but you'll have the sense that God is saying, this is yours. And you say, okay, this is step number one. You just say, God, I'll step up to the plate. I'll do it. I don't know how, but if you want me, I'm yours. That's what Joshua did. God said, Joshua, it's your turn. And Joshua said, all right, sir, I'm here. I'm checking in. I'm your guy. Now, 
If you don't tell God yes, when God gives you challenges, you can forget about the next seven. That's why many of us sort of bump along the bottom. God's kind of like motion for us to, to do something by faith. And we say, no, I don't think I want that. It looks too tough for me. I don't want to get out of the box. I want, you know, the worst thing I can experience, here's a cardboard cut on the box because I'm not going to get out of the box. You can forget about the next seven, unfortunately. But when you say, okay, God, I, I'm, I'm in it, then the next key is the climate of radical encouragement. God came to Joshua and said, be bold. You may not feel bold, but act bold. Be strong. Be courageous. And Joshua said to the people, I mean, God gave him the message. Joshua said to this three million people, he said, I want you to be bold. I want you to be strong. And then the most unusual thing happened. You know, it's not unlikely necessary for God to come along to a man or woman and say, I want you to act courageous because this is going to be bigger than you are. And it's not unusual for a leader like myself to stand before a congregation and say, God wants you to be strong. But then the most peculiar thing happened. All three million people turned around to Joshua and they said to their leader, we want you to be strong. We want you to be courageous. That says so much to me about why this generation did great things. They wanted their leader to be strong. You know, in America today, we have a pretty tepid emotional environment. We get stressed pretty easily. Most Americans do not want strong leadership. Because strong leadership means you're going to be uncomfortable. Now, if some of you, you work at work, you have a strong leader. You have a strong CEO. You, know, you have a man or woman who leads your team and your group, and that person's a strong leader. You know what? If you have a strong leader, you're going to have to perform. That's a fact. If you have a weak leader... I mean, that guy's, that, that guy's watching the clock so you can watch the clock, and that guy's doing what's expected of him so you can do what's expected of you, and you can sort of go on and live your life and not worry too much about your job because you have a weak leader. But strong leaders always mean you have to perform. And I just, I'm, I'm all over this because these Israelites said to Joshua, we want you to be a strong leader. We know it's going to make our life uncomfortable. We know that we're going to have to risk a lot, but we want to follow somebody who's not afraid. To me, that says volumes. And so now Joshua is, is in this climate of radical encouragement, not sympathy. They're not patting each other like the 10 spies did and said, oh, we're going to get killed if we go over there. These are people that are saying, hey, be bold, be strong, don't wimp out, don't choke, game's not over, get back up. All this happened in a climate of radical encouragement. God encouraging the leader, the leader encouraging the people, the people encouraging their leader, and it was just this upward spiral of radical encouragement. And I've tried to ask you, let's create zones of radical encouragement. Let's make our homes radical encouragement zones. Turn your team at the office into a radical encouragement zone. Often, all it takes is for one person to start the encouragement train rolling. You know, with, with your friendships, give encouragement. I mean, don't sit on the phone for 45 minutes and tell your friend how bad she has it, how awful she has it, and how sad you are. I mean, that, you're just drug dealing when you do that, okay? Be an encourager. That's, that's key number two. Then we talked about key number three last week. That's the power of buzz. Remember this. The most important thing that you have in your life to make a difference is influence. You and I are influencing people either for good or for bad, either go for it or to wimp out. We have this sort of aura of influence around us. That's what allows us to accomplish great things. If you're a great leader, you know, you may not have the greatest education in the world. You may not have, you know, you may not have worked for the biggest Fortune 500 country, companies. But if you're a great leader, I'll tell you why you are. It's because around you, there's this aura of influence. And people just want to work with you. They want a piece of what you're doing because you have influence. But now, here's the thing. When you sync up with God, something unusual begins to happen at that point because God begins to work in your life, and the influence that begins to emanate from you is greater than you have the capacity for. 
people size you up. They look at you, and they think, well, you know, she can do this, but she can't do this, or, you know, I, I, you know and, and based on how you look and, and what your education is and, and what your talent level is, people look at you, and they size you up, and they think, this is what you're able to accomplish. But when God comes along, your influence goes off the charts because God can take care of all those inadequacies that you and I have. Okay, I know I'm flying fast today, but I want you to see how these three keys fit, the first three keys. But I want to go back to the first one for a moment. Because when I talked about stepping up to the mic and saying yes when God puts a challenge out in front of you, some of you listened to me and you said something like this. Well, I like Mark's message this morning about stepping up to the mic, but I tried that once and it didn't work. I told God I'd do something, and it didn't work out, and and now I'm not doing it anymore. It never worked out. I I don't know what went wrong, but I said, here I am, God, and and I'll step up to the mic, and I signed up for something, or I volunteered, and then it it just never went anywhere, okay? If if you're like that, I mean, even for something simple, like you're saying, well, I I decided I was going to take care of my body and lose weight and, and work out, and it just never went anywhere, and you stepped up to the mic, but you didn't get across the finish line, Probably the key is with this fourth point right here, the fourth key that I'm going to talk about this morning. Now, before I get there, could I, could I just say this? One of the great challenges in following God is this. Following God often means that you will, it's an it's a odd mixture of waiting past the point of reason and moving faster than is advisable. If you follow God, you'll find this weird kind of juxtaposition going on in your life where when you say, okay, God, I'm going to follow you, and the next thing you know, you're cooling your heels and you're waiting and you're saying, God, why am I still waiting? The game's nearly over and you got me sitting here. And the next thing you know, God's going to want you to move lightning fast. You're saying, God, I'm not prepared to go forward. Following God is often this weird combination of moving slower than you feel like is, is reasonable and faster than you feel like is advisable. And the reason for that is God's will is always perfect, and God manages his will through his timetable. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I, I don't know why God has me waiting. I mean, I know this is what God wants in my life, but it's like I wait and I wait and I wait, and I know what God wants for me. I know what his will is, but why am I waiting? The reason why you're waiting is God is managing his will through his timetable. You could be talking to somebody here today, and you say, Mark, it looks like God wants me to pull it green. I don't know why. I mean, God's making me move real fast, and I'm not prepared. I, I want to be better educated, and God's saying, move, 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 move. What's going on? God is managing his will through his timetable. That drives me crazy. i got to tell you that, okay? Just want you to know that you're not listening to a guy with a halo. I, I have no trouble with God's will. His timetable drives me nuts. But what I always discover, what I should say is, his timetable drives me nuts until I look back on it. Because when I look back, it's always right. In the early service, I told a story. And I'll try to tell it real fast. Because I have so many things to say to you today. Uh, When when I came to Wichita, uh, you have to understand that I I really was not anxious to move to Kansas, all right? I'm a Texan. And I'd never lived here before, never been to Kansas, and the church had been contacting me, and really had contacted me for about three years trying to talk to, me, talk to me about coming to Kansas. And I put it off and didn't really want to. But to make a long story short, I'll tell you the whole story sometime. I finally came up here in September of 1984, and, and I, I just came up to speak, and I thought I was going to drive right back to Texas and get on with my life. But when I came up here, I fell in love with the church, still in love with the church, fell in love with the city. 
I, I, love, I love Wichita. I love Kansas. Don't know why sometimes, but I do. And the only thing is, I went back home, and, and, and I couldn't come immediately because not only was I serving on the staff of another church, but I also was teaching, and I had a contract that ran throughout the school year. And even though this was like the first week of September, I couldn't come until the first week of June. And I personally, I thought it would be a deal breaker, and I thought that I can get out of going to Kansas that way. And he said, no, we still want you to come. So I told Mary Alice, we've got to sell our house. It was only about a year old. Mortgage rates were about 13 14% in those days, if you remember how things were in the early 80s. And uh, our neighbor's house had been on the market for two and a half years. Nothing was happening. I mean, just real estate market was dead. And I thought, this, it's, 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 this isn't going to happen. We're not going to be able to sell our house. And Mary Alice got out in front of me, and she put an ad in the, in the Star Telegram there. It said, home for sale. Three bedrooms, two bath, two-car garage. No price. We didn't know what we wanted to ask for it. I mean, can you imagine putting a real estate ad in the paper like that when nobody's homes are selling? This is a fact. Only one person responded to that ad during the three-week window that it ran in the paper. One guy came, walked around our house one time, said, I'll buy it. And we said, we don't know what we're going to ask for it. He said, I still want it. They were building a new hospital not far from us, and, and he was going to work for that hospital. He said, I want this house. And we said, well, I think, I think we're probably going to ask this, but I don't know for sure. Got to do some checking. We actually did some checking, and we wound up having to sell it for $5,000 more than we thought we were going to. He said, no problem. Buy the house. And I thought, oh, man, is God all over this? You know, because I'm thinking it's going to take us forever to sell the house. I go back home one week. House sells, September. I can't come to Kansas until June. But I'm so glad God is at work because I told Mary Alice, you know, we'll sell our house, and if we have any time left over, we'll have to lease an apartment for a while. Well, it was during the savings and loan debacle, and the guy's savings and loan went, went, went bankrupt, and we had to start all over from scratch. And so, you know, the end of September rolls around, and then October goes by, and November goes all completely, and then finally we close on December the 6th. Now, it took me about three seconds to say that, but if you know how obsessive and compulsive I am, you can imagine what those months were like when I was waiting for something to happen, and why is it not working out? And, you know, maybe it's not going to fall, it's going to fall through, and we're not, you know, all those things I went through until finally on December 6th we close. By the way, you know, if you lease an apartment, they generally want at least a six-month lease, the date we were supposed to move to Kansas was June 6th. It's exactly six months from December 6th to June 6th. And God was just managing it all out. See, I was going ape. I was going crazy, but God was managing it out perfectly. So I'm telling you, if you want to follow God, what you're going to discover is it's a weird mixture of God causing you to wait longer than you think is reasonable and move faster than you think is advisable. It'll be going like this all the time. And that's the challenge. But here's the thing. When God wants you to move, it's very important to have the confidence to take that first step. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Scripture says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. didn't say hard. It says impossible. Faith is trusting God. Faith is responding to that timetable that God puts in our lives. It's waiting when we want to move, and it's moving when we want to wait. God says to Abraham, you know, I want you to leave your country. And Abraham says, okay, I'm not ready to move yet, but he moved. And then God said, I'm going to give you a son. He was ready to have a son, but he had to wait till he was 100. But the reason why Abraham is considered the father of faith is that he waited when God said wait, and he moved when God said move. And that's what move, and that's what God is looking for. Anyone who comes to him, the Bible says, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those 
who earnestly seek him. Now, where we are now in our text is this. The Israelites have once again come to the border of Canaan. They are at the spot where they must now make a decision whether to go forward and take the land or to choke like their predecessors did. Interestingly, hang with me for a second. Interestingly, they have to cross a body of water to get there. They did that 38 years before. It was a similar moment. 38 years before, they had come to the Red Sea. And Moses had held out his rod over the Red Sea, and the waters parted back, and they walked across on dry ground. We know about that story. Now, they must once again cross a body of water. And we read about it in, in, in this chapter, in Joshua chapter 3. Now, if you have your Bible maps, and you probably don't have time to turn there, but just in case you have a map of, of, uh, of the Holy Land in the Old Testament, or any, any era for that matter, you will notice that in order for the Israelites to go into to Israel, into what we know of as, as modern Israel or the Promised Land, they had to... Uh, they, they had to go across some body of water. Up at the top is the Sea of Galilee. At the bottom is the Dead Sea. And there's this ribbon of a river that connects the two bodies of water that's called the Jordan River. Certainly, they don't want to go across at the Sea of Galilee. They don't want to go across at the Dead Sea because both those bodies of water are very broad. If they're going to cross, they need to cross the river. They need to go across Jordan River to get to what will eventually be Jericho, the capstone city of Canaan. And so now they're here at this body of water. What I find is really interesting, church, is crossing Jordan was a bigger challenge than crossing the Red Sea. I want you to think about that for a moment, because what Joshua and his generation must do is a bigger challenge for several reasons than what their predecessors encountered 38 years before. Number one, the Bible tells us in the text that the water was at flood stage. The river had overflowed its banks And when they got there, they must have looked at that and thought, I don't know if this is a good time or not to go, because it was was overflowing. It was a bigger challenge. Here's the second thing that you might not notice the first time you read the text. It was a greater risk. And let me tell you why. When Moses and the Israelites went across the Red Sea, they were then in the wilderness. If things didn't work out, as we see eventually, they could wander around out there in the wilderness. But when Joshua and his crowd, when they go across the Jordan, they are locked and loaded. There's no turning back because they're right there at Jericho and the Jordan River is behind them. There is no place to wander around for 38 years. If they cross, once they cross the river, they're there. They're committed. It was a greater risk, but it was also a greater reward because when Moses and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness. They were on their way. But when Joshua and his generation cross the Jordan, they're going to be in Canaan. They're going to be in the promised land. Now, that's what I want you to see. With great risk, when you follow God, with great risk comes great reward. And if you want the greater blessings of God, listen to me. If you want the greater, the richest blessings of God, you're going to have to take some risks. You're not going to be able to sit down and just have God rain it down on you. You're going to have to take some great risks if you want the great blessings of God. So now, I know, I just lost a bunch of you, didn't I? Because I just said, if you, you're going to have to take some risks for God. And some of you are saying, man, Mark, all I want to do is I want a little religion in my life. You know, so I won't be an absolute pagan and maybe God will take me to heaven when I die. And I just want to watch cable TV and go on vacations and find someplace warm to retire. And I don't know that I want to take any great risk. I know I just lost you. And so 
I don't know what you're going to do for the next 12, 15 minutes. I mean, doodle on your bulletin, you know. If you've got, you know, if you've got a, you know, if you've got a palm pile or something, maybe check your email. For those of you, I just lost you, and I know that. But for the rest of you, but for the rest of you that want to get life in the zone and really experience God's blessings at its finest, give me a few minutes, because if you suspicion that God is up to something great in your life, there are four things that you want to see in this chapter. And it's not that I want to have four points to the message today. There's just four things that you got to see here. If you truly believe that God is leading you to something great, there are four things that you need to take a look at. We'll scroll through them here. And when we leave here, I think you're going to have some, some things that will really help you. What do you do if you suspect God has something big for you? Here's number one. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. Early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia and arrived at the banks of the Jordan River where they camped before crossing. Okay? Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Here's Joshua. He's got three million people with him. They're moving toward the promised land. They've got this river in front of them. And then right beyond the river, there's Jericho, this walled city that nobody has been able to defeat. He's got to get three million people across a body of water. He's got to defeat Jericho. He has a plan for neither. He has no idea how he's going to cross the river. He has no idea how he's going to defeat Jericho. But notice here is number one. If you think God has something big for you, number one, move into place move into place. Get to the place emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically. Get to the place where if God says, okay, go, 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 you're ready to go. Now, I don't know how that's going to touch you today, but my guess is going to touch us in different places because God has different things for us. But some of us, we know that God has something that we need to do in our lives, but there's there's stuff in the way. Just move to the place where God can touch you and lead you if, if, if the time comes for God to say, okay, it's not time for you to go. Now, here's the thing that I love about this. Remember I said that following God is an odd juxtaposition of waiting past the point of reason and moving faster than seems advisable. Because now here's Joshua. He doesn't know how he's going to get across the Jordan. He doesn't know, you know, how he's going to defeat uh, Jericho, but he's moving his army into place. He gets them right down to the bank of the river. Now, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, you know, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing the people. I'm moving into place. Surely, when I get the people down to the river, God's going to be there to meet me, and he's going to say, way to go, Josh. Good job. We're ready to go now. Here's the plan. There is an interesting little line there in the next verse, because after Joshua got the people right to the bank of the Jordan and moved into place, the Bible says, three days later, Three days later. Listen, I don't know if Joshua is obsessive compulsive like I am, but I gotta tell you something. When I'm waiting, three days can seem like an eternity. I mean, that's three days of the people saying, What are we doing here? You know, what's the plan? I don't know. Joshua hadn't said anything. Well, be courageous. <laughs> you know, what what are we gonna do? Joshua didn't know. But he was there and God said, Just want you to wait. And maybe that's going to happen with you, because it could be that God is leading you to some specific act in your life, and you know it's there but you're just moving into place. I'm just getting my life to the place, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially, I'm getting my life to the place where if God says, I want you to move, I'm ready to go. I won't have to say, well, God, I'll be ready when I take care of this because you've already taken care of that. You're already moved to the place 
where God wants you to be. So that's number one, moving to place. Let me show you number two, verse four. These are instructions. At this point, the people are being given instructions about what they're going to do, how they're going to cross the river. At this point, you got to understand that people are looking at a swollen river. The river is over its banks. But Joshua is now giving them the plan as God is giving it to him. Verse 4. Since you've never traveled this way before, they will guide you, the leaders. Stay, look at this, about a half mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. Now, I know that I just picked a verse, a cherry-picked a verse out of the middle of a text. Let me give you a little background. There was a 42-inch cubic box that the Israelites kept their eyes on. If you saw Raiders of the Last Ark, or if you've read the Bible, you know about the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant was this wooden box overlaid with gold. There were two golden angels that faced each other. And in between those two angels, there was this sort of divine cloud that was the presence of God. And the Israelites were focused on that box, the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't that that box was their God. It was just representative of their God. But it's a very sacred box, and God's presence literally dwelled there. And the Levites, they were like the, the second group of leaders, second tier of leaders, They had the responsibility of carrying the ark, and they carried it on poles because they could not touch the ark. They carried it on poles. And Joshua said, here's what's going to happen. The leaders, the Levites, are going to carry the ark, and they're going to go first. They are the first guys to go into the water. And Joshua said, now, here's the thing. When those guys go into the water, back off. And he said, stay a half mile behind them. Now, you may think I'm playing a little bit too loose with the text this morning, but here's what I see. Sometimes, number two, you've got to give God some space to work. Joshua was saying to his people, you back off and let God have some space to work. A couple of reasons why this is absolutely vital. Number one, hear me. There are some things in your life only God can do. We Americans, we're so accustomed to thinking if we can just get the right education, the right talent package, the right team, the right technology, we can do anything. But I'll tell you what, there are some things that only God can do. And so here, you know, if you want to follow God and you really want your life to sync up with God and you want to get life in the zone, you've got to back off sometimes and just give God some space to work. I'm talking to some of you here today, and this really bears on your family. Because, you know, you're married to a guy and you're thinking, oh, my soul, I've been trying for 20 years to make him the man I want him to be, and he's just dense, and he's not picking up on anything. And maybe I'd be better off married to somebody else. Let me give you a piece of advice. Why don't you just back off a little bit and give God some space to work? And say, God, I can't do anything with this guy. I mean, (laughs) God, I don't know what to do. Just back off and give God some space to work. You know, if, you're, if you, you may be married to a woman, you say, I've tried everything in the world I can do to, to see something good happen here, and my marriage is just not working. How about backing off and giving God some space to work? Well, it really, it really bears on raising kids, doesn't it? Because every once in a while, we, you know, we just want to get into our kids' lives, and we want to correct all those things that are wrong. And yes, we need to have influence, and we need to teach them right from wrong. But there are times, I think, when parents actually begin to work against God's plan because they're trying to straighten everything out in their lives. How about just backing off and giving God some space to work? Because when I, when I do that, I discover many times that God is capable of doing those things that I didn't think w- w- was possible. But my problem is I want to fix everything, and I want God to do it too. And God's just saying, that doesn't work, Mark. Back off. Give God about a half mile space. 
and let God do some work. Second reason why it's so key is God does not work the way we work. You know, when I look at all the issues in my life that I want to resolve, I know how they should be fixed. I am a fixer by nature, and I know how things should be fixed. But what I have to do sometimes is back off and say, God, you may not want to work this. You may not work the way I want to work. God told the prophet Isaiah, he said, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That was God's way of saying, I'm not going to do everything the way you think I should. So the key, the second key is if you want to really step out and follow God, sometimes you have to back off and give God space. You know why that's so important? It's so important because God wants the glory. God wants the credit. And if God does what only God can do, God doesn't want us taking the credit for what he did. And I tell you what, I'm perfectly content with that. If I can just live in a zone where God is doing great things, I'll be so glad to take my hands off and say, it's not me, it's God, it's not me, it's God working in my life. But God wants you to give him some space. Here's number three. Let's look at the third thing real quickly. After you give God some room and you move into place. Joshua 3 verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. Number three is clean up. Clean up. If you think God wants you to do something great, and he does for every one of us, you got to get clean. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you're a holy Joe. But I mean just saying this, if you really want to follow God, if there's something in your life that doesn't belong, you need to get rid of it. And God didn't, Joshua didn't say to the crowd, now, I want you to wait till God comes and cleans you up. Joshua said to the people, you clean up. If there's something that's not right in your life, get, get rid of it. Why? Is it just that God, you know, because somebody's saying, wow, I was really tracking with you, Mark, until this point, because, man, there's some stuff in my life that's not right, and some of the words that I say that aren't good, and some of the stuff I watch, and some stuff on my iPod that's not really good, and, and uh, you know, I've got some bad attitudes, and, and I've got some unforgiveness in my life, and, and maybe I've got some pride, and, and I was really clicking with you there for a few moments, Mark, but I just don't know that I really want to clean house. Well, let me tell you why God wants you to. The very worst thing that could happen is for God to take you into the place of blessing and for you to not get rid of that stuff. Because if the Israelites brought their filth with them, they they would have fouled up Canaan. They would have fouled up this land. And so, sir, let me tell you something. You know, I'm talking, some of you guys, you're Christian men, you want to do great things for God and you want God to bless you, but, you know, you got a pornography problem. You can't take that with you to Canaan. You can't take that with you to the place of blessing. You know, if you're dishonest and you cut corners and you don't tell the truth, I mean, God may love you and you may be a follower of Jesus, but God can't let you take that to a place of blessing because if he starts blessing you and you take that with you, then you're going to think that's okay and God doesn't care about that. And for some of us today, you know, I mean, we're there. We've moved into place and we're giving God space and we're praying and we're asking God to work and nothing seems to be happening. It could be that we just got some stuff in our life that we got to clean out. It could be a bad attitude. It could be dishonesty. It could be some, some sexual thoughts that are not the right thing. It could be some relationships that we have that can't belong in our lives. But God is saying this. He's saying if you want to go, you've got to clean your life. That's number three. Let me give you number four. Joshua 3, verse 15. Now it was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. God just wants you to know that. But as soon as the feet of the priest who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water began piling up. I love this. Like I said, when God opened the Red Sea, Moses stood over the Red Sea with his rod and the water opened back. And before anybody took the step, the land was already dry. This time, it's different. The priests have the ark on their shoulders. 
and the water still overflowing into what had been dry land. And this time, the priests have to put their feet into that flowing, overflowing, raging Jordan River. God is saying, I'm not going to resolve this thing before you have to take the first step. Fourth thing is, take the first step. When God says go, he may not resolve all the issues. You know, this is the reason why many of us are never going to be able to live life in the zone. We're saying, well, if God would just answer all my questions, and if God would just provide me all the money I need, and if God would just show me how it's going to work out, and if God would help everybody love me, then I'll take the first step. You'll never go. You'll never go. Because if you want to get into the life of blessing, there's always going to have to be that point where God says, okay, go, and you say, but it's not resolved yet, but I'm going to put my first foot in the water, and I'm going to wait for God to open it. Because remember this, God's not looking for your money. He's not looking for what you do necessarily. He's looking for your faith. He wants you to trust him. Now hear me, at many points in your Christian walk, you're going to have to take the first step when the water's still there. I'm talking to some of you, you've got a broken relationship in your life. You've got a friend, you know, somebody in your family, and there's unforgiveness. And you're mad at her, and she's mad at you. And you're saying, well, I know God says for me to forgive and restore the relationship, but man, when she gets her act together, then I'll, I'll do it. And she's saying the same thing about you. And what happens? Disconnection. Somebody's going to have to take the first step. Somebody's going to have to trust God. You say, well, what if she doesn't change? Well, who you, who's your confidence in, her or God? I mean, if God says for you to forgive, then you're going to have to step, you have to put your foot in the water. Maybe the river's not going to open up yet, but you're going to say, God, I'm going to trust you. In a few moments, we're going to have our offering. God says 10, 10% of our income belongs to him. I'm talking to believers now. If you haven't followed Jesus, I'm not talking to you. But, but for those of you who are already following Jesus, God says 10% is mine. He's saying, now listen, if you trust me with that, I'll open the windows of heaven. I'll give you a lot more than that 10%. And those of us who obey God, we know it's true. But I'll tell you what, the first time you write that check, you're going to have to put your foot in the water and trust God. But how many of us have found out God opens the water? Time after time after time in your life, God's going to say it's time to move and not everything's going to be resolved. What you do at that moment is going to determine whether you live life in the zone or not. You remember at the beginning of the message, I said there's some of you that you, you, you haven't understood why because when I talked about stepping up to the mic, you said, okay, Mark, I'm with you, but the last time I tried that, it didn't work. Could it be because... You said, yes, God, I'll do it, but then you had a problem actually executing it. If I've learned anything about following God, if I've learned anything actually about being a leader or a business or anything else, I've learned that there's a great deal of difference between embracing a vision and executing a vision. A lot of difference between saying, this is the paradigm I'm going to embrace, and something else to take the first step. Both of them are challenges within themselves. Both of them are, are battles to be fought. But many of us, have we've, we've fought that battle. We have embraced the vision that God has given us, but we've had a little trouble executing that vision. Today, I'm challenging you to take the first step. And I gave you four things. And by the way, at any point, any one of those four things, it can all fall apart. You know what? If you don't move into place, if you don't begin to, to start moving toward the place where God wants you to be, God can never get you to take the first step because you won't be at the river. Or on the other hand, if you won't give God room to work, God's not going to tell you to take that first step because we'll take, the, we'll take the credit, we'll take the glory. Or if we don't clean our lives, we'll wind up trying to take something into the promised land that God knows we can't take with us. 
Or maybe if we choke at that moment where God says take the first step because the water's overflowing the banks, it'll break down right there if we don't do what God wants us to do. My prayer is today we will not only embrace the vision God has for us, but we'll execute the vision that will take that first step. Now, I've done my part. I really believe I've brought to you what God had for me to bring to you today. The issue with this message is, I don't know how many people we have here today, 1,300 people, whatever, between the two services. The issue now is it must become your sermon because your Jordan will be different from my Jordan. Your first step will be different from my first step. It may be in your home. It may be in your business. It may be in the church. It can be in any environment. But my guess is you're going to walk out of here today, and, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I really believe God's going to say, this is your Jordan. This is what I'm talking to you about. I really believe I brought to you the message that God wanted me to bring. Now you begin to preach. Now the sermon goes to you. And may God help us to seize the moment, take the first step, and see what God does next. That's key number four. Next week, God willing, key number five. This, I don't know, I, I, I just so, I, I love so much the messages you guys are writing me and emailing me and, and, and telling me. And one of the things that amazes me is so many of you are telling me this is, this is transforming my business environment. And I'm glad to know that God's word will work in any environment. But my, my, my prayer for you is that God will help you and that God will help me to get our lives in the zone where God can make us everything we were truly designed to be.